Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Election Day has arrived in Hamilton. Learn about a new organ donation procedure. Overdue for your cancer screening? Well, it's time to get back on track. Does the size of a province impact government spending? We begin our five-part series about JFE Soji Power Canada. And the Ticats will indeed compete for the Grey Cup. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. What I'm hearing from people everywhere I go, all kinds of different people, is a real concern about the cost of housing. Working on bringing truth, trust and transparency back to City Hall. My message is getting out the way I'm hearing back from people and that they they accept my message. It is voting day in Hamilton and in hundreds of municipalities across Ontario. Big day for many wannabe politicians, those who are trying to hang on to their seats and their positions at city halls across the land and at school board offices across the land as well as we vote for school board trustees today. Our coverage will begin in earnest at 8 p.m. tonight when the polls close. Polls, by the way, will open at 10 and of course we'll have updates throughout the day on how the election is transpiring. Weather-wise, it looks fantastic for getting out to your local polling station. Sunshine, 20 degrees for the high. It is 4 as you step out the door this morning. So what is going to happen today, and what are some of the hot races around town and across the province? Kim Wright, principal and founder of Wright Strategies, joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Kim, welcome back to the show. How are you? Thanks for having me, and I've got my uh, NIMBY Tears coffee mug getting ready for today's election. (laughs) What is the most intriguing thing that you've been following in Hamilton's election campaign? Oh, Hamilton is interesting in that, you know, and I I cover it as a government relations professional and as a keen observer. Hamilton, for the last four years in particular, has had so many split votes, so many, we're going to politely call it acrimonious, uh, council debates. So what does the new council look like? And really, we've seen a you know, old guard versus new guard, different power dynamics, but certainly all of that stuff, uh, the mayoralty race, and then the open seats. I mentioned the nice weather. Um, does that affect voter turnout? In 2018, voter turnout was 38%. It was 34% in 2014. Will the nicer weather perhaps boost that to 40 or 40 plus percent? Well, I hope so. There's a number of municipalities that we're expecting this under 40% voter turnout, which makes for really fascinating uh, shifts in voter patterns uh, come, you know, counting a ballot. So if you think your ballot doesn't matter, trust me, on a day like today, it absolutely does. In in urban communities, uh, weather, nice weather makes for a generally an increased voter turnout in rural communities. But we'll we'll see how that shakes out. But I'll say to people, make a plan. Go vote with your friends. Go vote as a date night. It'll be a good time. <laughs> Does increased voter turnout usually benefit the incumbent, or is, is that just a wild card unto itself? It's a wild card unto itself. At this point, they have spent the last several months identifying their voters to get out to that, uh, get into that ballot box. Uh, but again, with that under 40% voter turnout, wild things can happen. Movements can happen. And, you know, I saw a, a video this morning on social media. If you don't like who who's who's getting elected, know that, you know, the bad people, the people that you, the Karens of the world, uh, they vote. So if you don't like how the votes go, go vote yourself. 
Absolutely. Polls open at 10 this morning. They close at 8 p.m. tonight. Our guest talking about uh, the hundreds of municipal elections that are happening today is Kim Wright, principal and founder Wright Strategies. Let's talk about some of the other big races. You've been following dozens of races in the province. What are some of the ones that are really intriguing you uh, across this province? Well, besides the Hamilton mayoralty race and the Hamilton council races, uh, certainly Vaughn, uh, which is former Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca versus Sandra Young Rocco, who is a veteran counselor. Uh, Brampton, in the city of Brampton, there is the uh, always entertaining Patrick Brown uh, running for his re-election uh, versus Nikki Kaur. Uh That's more of a political hacks behind the scene one, but we'll see how that plays out both on the mayoralty and on the council races. Um, Markham, uh, Frank Scarpetti uh, is the longtime mayor of council going up against his former deputy mayor, uh, Don Hamilton, who's also been a political titan out there uh, in Markham. So there's lots of really interesting races around the province. Um, there isn't just there isn't just a, a sleepwalking election, which is which is fascinating. And then, of course, the city of Ottawa, which is the other one that's getting the strong mayor powers uh, with along with Toronto. Um, going forward, that will be Catherine McKinney versus Mark Sutcliffe, so much more on the progressive side versus the establishment side, um, but both of them are battling it out, and their folks are battling it out neighbor to neighbor, doorstep to doorstep. You mentioned Brampton, and there's an interesting situation there because there are dozens, I think it's over 100 people who have resigned because today is also Diwali, and uh, the the Brampton, um, uh, I guess, polls are being impacted by a number of people who have resigned uh, just hours before the polls open. Yeah, and this becomes more and more of a factor, and that poll clerks and the province who sets the election date really needs to start looking at how do these overlap with religious and community-based festivals and, and holidays, um, in particular the, the major ones uh, like Diwali? And this has massive impact. We've already had challenges getting, getting people to staff polling stations in every election. We saw in the last uh, provincial and the federal them having to close a bunch of polling stations and shrink the number of access points. So this is a big challenge, and the province needs to, you know, get out a get out a calendar and have a look at this when they're looking at voting days. Is there one city that is going to shock us today? Oh, I love shockers on election day. <laughs> um, I, I I think that uh, I think that um, Brampton is always one just to keep an eye on. Um, but there's there's lots of places. There's 444 municipalities. There are a ton of storylines. Port Colborne is one that we're that we also are keeping a, an eye on, uh, just for you know interest because you've got brother versus brother in that race. Um, so that will be an, interesting to see who comes out on top. Election day is always an interesting one. Kim, thanks for sharing your insight and analysis with us today. Thanks. Uh, looking forward to uh, seeing the days and weeks ahead and how this uh, will shake out for voters and, and Ontarians. You got it. Thanks for the time. Thanks. Kim Wright, Principal and Founder Wright Strategies, and uh, joining us uh, with a, uh, a look at what is to come here or what may come on this election day. We really can't predict it. I mean, we can guess, we can analyze, we can uh, guesstimate on who's going to win and what's going to happen. Um, but we are not 100% right 100% of the time. That is for sure. There's always a surprise here or there. 
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I know it's it's maybe too early in the morning for your brain activity to think hard about things, or at least some really deep topics, but we're going to dive into one right about now because this is an important one. It's about organ donor, well, it's about a lot of things, but one of them is organ donor safety which has been suddenly thrust under the microscope amid ethical issues surrounding a new organ retrieval procedure that has many medical ethicists split over its use. Dr. Charles Ware is a professor of medicine and philosophy at Western University and a leading expert on the ethics of randomized control trials and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Ware, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Rick. Thanks very much for... uh having me on your show. Yeah, thanks for coming on because I I really need your help on this one. Can you explain this new organ retrieval procedure known as normal thermic regional perfusion or NRP? How does it work? Yeah, it's quite a name, isn't it? Um, NRP is a new perfusion technology um, that that holds a lot of promise. It promises to improve uh, patient outcomes uh, after, after organ donation. Uh, but it, as you mentioned, it raises ethical issues. This is a technology that's used elsewhere. It's used in Spain, the United Kingdom, the United States, but it's not yet used here uh, in Canada. So as I understand it, right now, surgeons are only allowed to remove organs when the heart has stopped permanently, but this method restarts blood flow so those organs don't suffer damage. Is that the nuts and bolts of it? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, Rick, most most organs for donation in Canada are come after deceased donation, and uh, one major path for deceased donation is is where a patient who has a, a very poor prognosis, say, is being treated in the intensive care unit. The family makes a decision to withdraw life support, and the patient herself is an organ donor, or the family consents on 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 her behalf. Um, so the, that patient then goes through a, a planned withdrawal of life support, their heart stops, and there's a five-minute sort of hands-off period, and after that, organs are retrieved. The challenge in this scenario is that after life support is withdrawn and during the dying process, the organs that might be used for transplant don't receive blood flow, they don't receive oxygen, and so there's damage to those organs. So in that scenario, as many as 70% of organs can't be used despite the wish from the donor that those go on to uh, save, save other lives. That's where NRP comes in. NRP says, right, how can we get blood flow and oxygen back to those organs as soon as possible after death? So a region of the donor's body, for instance, the abdomen, is connected to a a machine that does the work of the heart and the lungs, restores blood flow early, and that leads to better quality organs, higher rates of of organ retrieval, and possibly even better better outcomes um, after, after transplantation. So that's kind of how the technology works. But as you suggested, it, it raises it raises a number of, of ethical issues. Well, one of those is the dead donor rule, because if this is, uh, let's just say, re-energizing the circulatory system, the blood flow, um, is this person dead or not? Yeah, so, so the scenario here is someone who's being declared dead 
based on heart criteria or circulatory criteria. So they were declared dead on the basis that their circulation had permanently stopped. But now we're connecting them to an external machine that's, that's circulating blood. Does that violate the definition of death? Even more problematic when NRP is connected to the abdomen and the chest, uh, after about 30 minutes, the donor's heart will start beating again on its own. And I think that's in the scenario where a lot of your listeners will say, well, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, they were dead because their heart had stopped and it wasn't going to start again. And you're telling me that their heart is going to start again and work on its own. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I think there's a serious issue here, particularly for the kind of NRP that circulates blood to the abdomen and the chest. So what are the chances, Dr. Ware, that this new organ retrieval procedure will one day come to Canada? Well, I think it's a very promising uh, technology. Other countries are using it to good effect. So there's a lot of discussion about it in, in the organ donation and transplantation communities. But there's a, a major set of ethical issues, you know, as we've been discussing here, that just need to be addressed uh, before that happens. So I'm leading a team at Western University that's looking into these ethical issues. We're cataloging ethical uh, issues, but, but equally importantly, we're uh, interviewing key stakeholders here, uh, uh, organ donor families, organ recipients, health providers who are involved in the care of donors and transplant recipients, and organ donor, donor organizations. And we're interviewing them about their understanding of this technology, their perception of the ethical issues, but importantly, what they think are the drivers of trust and mistrust here. What we hope to get out of our, our study here is, is really a deep understanding of, of what drives trust specifically around NRP. And once we have a good picture of that, that'll allow us to craft policy for the responsible adoption of this technology uh, right here in Ontario. Really quick, as we got to go, when do you hope to issue your final report after your study? We hope to have a report out next year. All right, so we're going to look for that, and maybe we'll have you back on to analyze uh, those details. Dr. Ware, thank you for your time today, and good luck with us. Thanks so much, Rick. That's Dr. Charles Ware, professor of medicine and philosophy at Western University and a leading expert on the ethics of randomized control trials. Really interesting story. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, we've been talking about COVID-19 related um, delays and one of which certainly hits home in the health related field. To that end, the Haldeman or the Hamilton Niagara Haldeman Brant Regional Cancer Program is encouraging everyone who's due for their cancer screening to get back on track. There's a new initiative that has been launched, hashtag get back on track. So we want to tell you why it's important to do so. And here to help us out is Dr. Megan Davis, family physician, regional primary care lead for the Hamilton Niagara Haldeman Brant region. Dr. Davis, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I am well, and thanks for that to reminder to vote. I sure will after work today. <laughs> well, the other reminder is get your cancer screening in order if you are due or overdue for one. Yeah, yeah. And thanks for having us on, me on, because um, it's an important message. You know, the pandemic's been really hard on everyone, um, and uh, let alone the people who got uh, COVID, but all of us have had changes and so many unknowns. 
Uh, so, but things are coming a little bit more normal, and uh, and I'm finding in my own family practice that people are starting to come in and saying, "Okay, I want to start taking care of my health now. What should I do?" And you know, the answer is lots of things: um, not smoking, eating well, exercising, and cancer screening, which was put on hold um, for the past uh, couple of years due to the pandemic. And we're encouraging everybody now to get back on track because. There are quite a few people out there in our region where who are due for cancer screening. Um, so cancer screening is important because it helps detect cancer early when you're feeling well. You don't have any symptoms at all. Um, and you find it earlier when it's easier to treat. So how many local people, I don't know if you have numbers on this, but how many local people are either due or overdue for their screening? Quite a few. So we think that we estimate the backlog just in our region for screening for breast cancer is 31,000 people. Um, and for cervix cancer is 47,000 people. Um, a little bit less for colorectal cancer with FIT. It's about 25,000 people. I used to tell my patients during the pandemic that um, FIT testing was the perfect pandemic poop test because you can do it at home in your own uh, house, specifically in your bathroom. <laughs> How concerning of a situation is this? We know that the pandemic has pushed things back and people have, you know, reflected on what has happened over the last couple of years and maybe their personal health isn't that top of mind. Are, are you greatly concerned that people would just say, ah, you know, I'll, I'll get to it when I get to it? Yes, because um, this, this, on average, the sooner you find cancer, the better. Um, so we do think that this backlog has led to an increase in undiagnosed and so untreated cancers. We think there's possibly hundreds of people out there in our region and probably thousands in our province. And, and um, we would really like to have those people get screened. We've been told over the last number of months, if not years, that there is a wait list to get uh, health-related services. Is it, is it easy to book an appointment? Uh, yeah, so you can you can get your poop test delivered to your own home in the mail uh, within weeks. Um, the uh, mammogram suites are 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 ready and waiting, um, and the pap test is as close as your primary care provider's office. So yeah, the the um, it's during the pandemic, of course, we we um, it was less available, but now we're ready and waiting. I'm sure you've heard and come across many people who have stories of, boy, I'm glad I got my screening done because now I can tackle this cancer aggressively and early on in the process. Yeah, I have people in my own practice where, I mean, it's it's so motivational for it when you when you can um, change a person's life through cancer screening. Yeah, for sure. And you know, does a couple of months make a huge difference in that diagnosis? Well, it, that's such a, a, a question. Uh, depends on each individual case. Right. Um, but uh, I, I mean, I, what I hope people do will just put it more to the top of their to-do list. We're all super busy. We are having great feedback. We've been going to um, to different areas to spread the word, and we have people saying, you know, you know, thanks. I I had that kind of on my mind, but this is you talking to me about it. It's really put it on the top of my to-do list. I'm I'm going to get back on track. So. I think people are thinking about it, but they're really busy. So this is kind of a, a suggestion to to make it more of a priority. Let's do so, because uh, we know that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, it, this week is Cervical Cancer Awareness Week. So this is the time to do it. Uh, Dr. Davis, really appreciate your time today. And hopefully we've encouraged some people to make an appointment. 
I hope so, too. Thanks so much. That's Dr. Megan Davis, family physician, regional primary care lead for the Hamilton, Niagara, Holdeman, Brant region. And uh, yes, call your physician now. Make an appointment to get uh, that cancer screening on your schedule. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A pretty interesting study is out. It's from the Fraser Institute, and it's released uh, this new look at the link between population size and the size of government. It's called Population and the Fiscal Outcomes of Subnational Jurisdictions. It's investigating the factors that contribute to the overall effectiveness of a province or a U.S. state. Russell Sobel is a professor of economics and entrepreneurship at the Baker School of Business at the Citadel and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Russell, welcome to the show. Good morning, Rick. Thank you so much for having me on. You analyzed almost 30 years of data to determine what exactly? Yeah. So, you know, I've been interested now for a couple of years in, is there an effect of different population sizes on the economic outcomes that we get in different states and provinces? I mean, the, the variation might be larger than people realize. I mean, you guys live, obviously, the largest province with almost 15 million people. It's like 90 times larger by population than Prince Edward Island. And, you know, three times larger than British Columbia or Alberta. And similar in the United States, we've got California, which is like 70 times larger than Wyoming. I mean, these differences are, are giant with regard to the smallest versus the largest states and provinces. And our, our, our biggest ones, like Ontario and California, are large by global standards. I mean, Ontario, if it was a country of its own, would be in the top 75 most populous countries in the world, and California would be in the top 40. And it, it's a pretty interesting question that not a lot of people have looked at, which is how does the size of states and provinces affect their economic outcomes? So between the study I did this year and the one I did last year, I've been looking at different kinds of things. The one that, uh, that specifically you mentioned <clears throat> is the one that just came out where we're looking at different measures of government performance like taxes and different measures of progressivity and taxes on consumption versus income and usage of debt and expenditures and revenues and things like that. What jumped out at you the most? Something that you didn't expect or maybe you expected to see but not to that magnitude? Well, I think what's most interesting to me is how much the conclusion is the same across several different measures. <clears throat> there seems to be this optimum size that it's not like bigger is always better or smaller is always better. <clears throat> and it looks like for Canadian provinces, the answer is fairly clear. About nine and a half million is about what you want to be. You, you're either smaller than that or bigger than that, and you get less effective. And obviously you guys are beyond that point. So is the is the effectiveness the same if you're bigger or smaller than that optimum number number? Yeah, yeah, it's U-shaped. So basically there's several different things that are affected, but one of which is government spending or revenue as a share of the economy. So basically, you know, that might sound like some big macro measure that people don't care about, but really what it means is like taxes is a percent of your income. Like how much taxes do you need to pay as a citizen living in a state or province to support the activities of government? Right. You can imagine that in a small place like Prince Edward Island, right, they've got to cover a lot of bills with very few people, right? It's it's like it's kind of like putting on a, a rock concert and only having two attendees, right? The price per person <laughs> is going to be really high, right? But 
you know, with rock concerts, the more and more people you put on, the less and less per person. But what seems to happen with states and provinces is there's a point where it turns back up, where they just get less effective because they actually just get too big. And so I think it's just striking to me that the, the results on this study almost mirror my other one, uh, which was looking at economic freedom levels that we could talk about, which reflect a lot of things like regulation and business regulation and you know, all sorts of other free trade types of policies and, and whatever, about nine and a half million is seems to be the key. Yeah, the rock concert analysis uh, that or the uh, the analogy that you use is if you have, you know, overcapacity at this concert, uh yeah, you're making lots of revenue in terms of merch sales and uh, you know, soda sales and and beer sales, but there might be, you know, a few dozen individuals that get hurt at this concert and that's going to cost you money through the healthcare system or whatever. Is that kind of the analogy that would fit <laughs> in, in that regard? Yeah, actually, to think about it, but yeah, you could think of a lot of ways in which at some point it just gets too big. You got to yeah. get so loud, you're blowing out the people's eardrums in the front to try to reach the people in the back, right? <laughs> yeah, so I guess there is an optimal size crowd for a rock concert. So yeah, very similar. And you know, I I, uh, I didn't expect that number to pop out in so many of the different analysis uh, to be about the same. You know, I I think that's kind of an interesting thing. Russell Sobel is our guest here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Russell is a professor of economics and entrepreneurship at the Baker School of Business at the Citadel and uh, the man behind population and the fiscal outcomes of subnational jurisdictions in a study that's out from the Fraser Institute. He also looked at taxes, consumption taxes, income taxes, and they greatly vary from state to state and province to province. Yeah, I looked at those. I looked at also government debt and surplus and deficits, a couple of things that we can talk about uh, also. But let's uh, talk about the income and sales taxes. The two things are, I, you know, a lot of economists care a lot about this proportion of income to sales taxes. There's, we don't have to go into a lot of the reasons, but, you know, some people really think that a better way to tax things is by taxing consumption and income because you make some distortions and we don't have to get in that. But it's really interesting to note, though, that definitely and it's not U-shaped. Larger ones, both states and provinces, rely more heavily on income taxes. So if you live in a small state, you're likely as, as a tax burden to be paying a lot more taxes on sales taxes relative to income taxes. You'll have lower income taxation. While if you live in a large state or province like Ontario, California, generally those tend to rely more heavily relatively on income taxes relative to sales taxes or consumption taxes in general. And I think that is a pretty interesting finding. I mean, the, for about every million additional uh, persons, um, the reliance falls by about 2 to 3% of on um, consumption relative to income taxes. Wow. Do larger um, states or provinces uh, do a better job or, or are able to do a better job of uh, reaching those budget surpluses? Um, you know, it turns out that that was one of my, you talk about surprising findings. The most surprising finding to me is I, I really, really expected there to be a pretty strong relationship in some way, although I didn't know what, between the size and the reliance on surplus or deficits or government debt, really nothing. I mean, there's really, not for Canadian provinces, not for U.S. states, and we have balanced budget rules here, and I took those into account. There's just really nothing consistent except if you pick the data apart in the most recent data, so only looking at the most recent periods, the largest Canadian um, provinces tend to have larger surpluses, um, so do a little bit better. So that's probably dominated by you guys in Ontario more than anything. But that's really, you know, as a statistician, you look and you say that only holds for the recent years. It only holds in Canada, not the U.S. So, you know, you don't want to make too, too big of a conclusion of that. So, yeah, ironically enough, there just doesn't seem to be much consistent evidence of that. 
A lot of great data in this study. It's called Population and the Fiscal Outcomes of Subnational Jurisdictions. Russell, really appreciate the time. Great job on this stuff, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road for sure. All right. That sounds great. Thanks for having me on today, Rick. Russell Sobel, Professor of Economics and Entrepreneurship at the Citadel, a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute and author of Population and the Fiscal Outcomes of Subnational Jurisdictions. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Yeah, this is part one in our five-part series with JFE Sochi Power Canada. And here to talk about the company and what may be on the horizon is Jason O'Neill, director of Operational Systems at JFE Sochi Power Canada. Jason, good morning. How are you? I'm good, Rick. How about yourself? I'm great. Uh, I thought we'd take this opportunity to, uh, you know, really educate our listeners on what JFE is all about. How would you describe this company? Uh, We're we're definitely a a flexible manufacturer. Um, One of the things that kind of separates us is we deal with power and power generation and transformer cores. And so you are supplying energy to clients, distributing it. How does that work? Yeah, so basically, um, you know, people have seen tractor trails going down the road with uh, coils on them. We take a master coil, uh, we put it inside our operation and we slit it to size and then we make uh, various different products with that uh, electrical steel. Okay, so where do those products go? Uh, so our end users would be our utilities. Um, you know, if you look at pole mount, um, transformers, pad mount, the big green ones in front of the residentials, there is a transformer core in every one of those applications. So uh, it, majority of it is in that uh, realm, but we also do small toroidal cores, which are used in your everyday appliances at home. Um, you know, over the pandemic, we were really focused on helping the medical industry with uh, beds uh, that use toroids and small transformers, as well as uh, breathing applications. So safe to say over the last couple of years, especially, you've really been busy. Uh, it's been exponentially busy for us. It's been the busiest time for the for the organization of the last couple of years, uh, where a lot of markets uh, did see a lot of shrinkage. Uh, for us at JFE Soju Power Canada, it was a tremendous period of growth for us. Uh, there's never been a bigger demand right now for energy and uh, clean energy. So that is where we position ourselves quite nicely in the in the market. Jason O'Neill is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jason is the Director of Operational Systems at JFE Soji Power Canada in part one of our five-part series about the company, which is working to redefine North America's electrical energy infrastructure. How are you going about doing that? Right now, like I said, the demand is is uh, really quite high. Um, one of the things that we're doing now is is obviously ramping up our, our operations. Uh, we're in a tremendous period of growth, so there's a lot of opportunity for, for people to join the company right now. Um, we are really focused on growth and clean energy. There's a lot of opportunity for our uh, organization with the uh, EV market that's now taking on a, a big part of the movement inside North America and globally, switching from fossil fuels to to clean energy vehicles. So for us, it's going to be supporting, you know, rotors and stators that are going to be used in uh, electric motors. uh, And that demand is going to continue to decrease, you know, for decades to come. Does building a sustainable future mean backing up the Brinks trucks? Is this a massive investment that's on the way? Uh, yes, we've invested over uh, $20 million in the last uh, little bit, and we'll continue to invest going forward just so that we can support the increase in demand. You know, our clients uh, are just in the same boat as we are. It's very busy right now. Uh, you know, like Hurricane Ian that uh, went through the uh, Florida 
uh, area in the last couple of weeks that has really driven up a lot of demand. We are responsible to provide uh, transformer cores to uh, our end manufacturers and then obviously the end utilities to get power restored in areas. So supporting the grid and the revamp of the grid in North America is one of our, our key um, steps right now and, and that's going to continue to supply and, and obviously to support the demand that will be ever increasing over the next couple of years. Many people have been impacted by the global supply chain, whether they're ordering a product on Amazon or buying something perhaps at a, a local store. Uh, the supply just isn't there, or at least has not been there um, to the same degree than before the pandemic. Regarding the supply chain when it comes to JFE Soji Power Canada, is there enough electrical energy to go around? There is at this point, but, uh, you know, with the demand, everything takes electricity. I mean, the, the increase of handheld devices, uh, technology, uh, like I said, EV, the demand is, is ever increasing. If there's if there's not a uh, sustainable way to support that inside of electrical grids and, and, and updating our current grids, which are in North America, they're quite far behind in, in, in as far as infrastructure is concerned. So uh, the key to that is going to be you know getting that uh, grid up and running and, and supported and with the newest and latest and greatest technologies and make sure there's a lot of efficiencies in there to support that demand going forward. It's the first in our five-part series on JFE Soji Power Canada. Our guest is the Director of Operational Systems, Jason O'Neill. You spoke about some new opportunities on the horizon. That obviously means your company is in grow mode, and uh, you have a blue carpet event that uh, is uh, on the horizon as well. Tell us about it. Yeah, the blue carpet event is really uh, opening our doors to the community uh, and really showing them what we do. Uh, we're going to have uh, lots of things set up that day, including tours. You know, we're going to do some on-the-spot uh, interviewing for those that want to apply for uh, open positions currently in JFE. Uh, you know, currently we're about uh, 450 people strong, and we are continuing to grow. Uh, so we really are looking forward to to showing people what we do. A lot of people have seen our buildings in the area for years. Uh, and I think this is an opportunity for us to really open our doors and show people what we do. Uh, we are one of the larger manufacturers inside Burlington and, and in the Hamilton area. Uh, so we want to, you know, invite people to come in, take a look at what we do, see how we support, you know, the communities locally, but also globally and in, in, in North America. You can get more details online, jfesojipower.com. Uh, Jason, really appreciate the time today. Best of luck going forward. Thanks a lot, Rick. Appreciate it. And uh, for those that are interested, check out our website www.jfepowersoji.sojipower.com or on LinkedIn. You got it. Thanks, Jason. Thanks again. Jason O'Neill is the Director of Operational Systems at JFE Soji Power Canada. Soji, by the way, is S-H-O-J-I, JFE Soji Power Canada. Uh, they got, they got the, the, uh, the plan in place to not only bring us the energy right now but into the future as well exciting times at jfe soji power canada you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml last play of the game seth small is the leading field goal kicker as far as field goal percentage is concerned in the cfl a 30-yard attempt to win the game the kick is up the kick is good seth small has done it the tiger cats have won They win their final home game 
of the season in front of a sold-out crowd in dramatic fashion. A third straight win, and the Tiger Cats are playing their best football at the most important time. RJ Broadhead the call on the Ticats Audio Network and 900 CHML, as you heard Friday night. An unbelievable roller coaster ride of a victory for the Ticats, who beat Ottawa, eliminated the Red Blacks with that win. And then one night later, the Ticats watched as the Saskatchewan Rough Riders lost to Calgary, and that solidified the CFL six playoff teams, which includes Hamilton. And who would have thought so many weeks ago this team was 3-9 and nine at one point? They were 0-4 out of the gate. And who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk that the Ticats would rally and make the playoffs? I mean, they hadn't won two games in a row since, well, just a couple of weeks ago. And now they're on a three-game winning streak. They could make it four as they head to Ottawa this coming Saturday night. You can hear that game on 900 CHML. But what a performance by a number of individuals, including the Ticats defense. And if there is a defense that another playoff team does not want to play against, it might just be this Ticats team. Now, it wasn't perfect. Now, Ottawa made some hay. And the Red Blacks did not have their star players. You can make a case that, well, perhaps it wasn't an awesome defensive effort. But the Ticats forced a key turnover. They got eight points off that turnover. And the Ticats offense turned the ball over four times. And Ottawa only scored seven points. But Seth Small, five of six on field goals. Javon Santos-Knox and Tunde Delique and Cariel Brooks and Siante Evans all over the field. Big sacks and a, a huge sack by Cedric Wilcots. Not only did he sack Nick Arbuckle, he took the ball away from him, which turned into those eight points for the Ticats, and that was not necessarily the difference in the game, but a big part of what happened on Friday night. And I will say this, too. It was you know a, a talking point earlier on in the season for Hamilton, which they just could not do anything right in the second half. Now, so many blown leads in the second half this season. This this team should be way better than 7-10. and 10. I think, inconsistently, those terrible second halves. But on Friday night, Hamilton outscored Ottawa 17-6 in the second half, including 14-6 in the fourth quarter, in which Hamilton was going into the wind. Ottawa scored all their points with the wind at their back. The Ticats um, you know, only scored 13 points with the wind at their back. 17 against the wind. So Hamilton is playoff bound. There is a little bit of concern with starting quarterback Dane Evans. He left the game late with a hand injury, slid for a first down, and looked like his hand just got crunched underneath him. So let's just hope it's a rug burn and nothing else, because those would certainly smart. But at 7-10, Hamilton is stuck in third, so they will be in Montreal on November the 6th for the Eastern semifinal. The Alouettes lost their game against Toronto on a last play rouge. It's probably the worst way to win. And uh, so the Argos are Eastern Division champs. They will host the East Final and get the bye for the second year in a row. In the West, Winnipeg, well, they've been the top dogs out there for a while. 14-3, they've clinched first place. BC is alone in second. They will host the Calgary Stampeders in the Western Semi on November the 6th. So after Friday's game, the fifth quarter on 900 CHML had a boatload of callers who were in a celebratory mood. I worry, you know, you know, Dane Evans had a couple good 
good weeks there, and then it seems like the whole offense is it all reverted to the way it was at the beginning of the year, turnover after turnover. I mean, they out-yarded Ottawa 420 to 220 tonight. Like, that should have been a 35 to 17 game. Like, it's, it's, you got to wonder at what point does management and coaching start losing confidence in Dave, Dane Evans? First of all, the most positive thing is I don't think you can discount the will to win that this team is showing. I mean, they've had a lot of adversity and, and, you know, a comeback wins, a wins, a win. Having said that, you know, we played a, a, a brutal team tonight that, that the quarterback wouldn't beat either one of our quarterbacks out to start. We wouldn't pick him over Schiltz or, or uh, Evans. And yet, you know, they almost beat us. So we got to get smarter. And, and to have four turnovers in a big game like that and not looking like you were ready to start the game just what wasn't a good look. Some people need to remember that Ottawa's not very good, and I'm not trying to make excuses, but you know some teams just play down to the competition, which is unfortunate, but it does happen, right? I mean, they shouldn't do it; it shouldn't happen, but it does. You come in with a game plan, but you know every athlete will go in with the mindset that they're not playing a very good team, and that'll just trickle down to the entire locker room, right? If this team, though, with the exception of uh, small. If they are going to go anywhere in the playoffs, there's got to be more consistency. They can play like they played against Winnipeg, and then they can play like they did on Labor Day. And it's almost it's almost like there's no rhyme or reason. And I'm not just talking Evans. It's a whole team. You know, missed tackles and not protecting the quarterback and stupid penalties. It's just inconsistent beyond belief. I thought the game was handed to you on a silver platter tonight. But Hamilton deserves to be in the playoffs. They beat the top teams recently. Uh, like I said, don't be shocked if they end up in the Great Cup with Winnipeg again. Um, but I do think that, you know, had Ottawa had different coaching and had Mazzoli not get, got hurt, you know, we'd be, we have a whole different conversation. When we get down to it, like, it, it, it's nice to be winning. It's nice to be hopeful. It's nice to be not that team that, I feel like the Saskatchewan Rough Riders are right now. They played great all season, and now they're falling apart like we've done. And now we didn't play great all season, but now we're turning it on at the end, and now we've got a chance. And uh, there is always a chance when you're in the playoffs, winning the Grey Cup. There's only six teams that have the opportunity to do that this season. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.